First Peter chapter number 1. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. We're going to read down to verse number 16. Uh, this epistle begins this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls." of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching water, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to be in the house of God on a Wednesday night that we, Lord, might be able to uh, gain edification from your word that we might be preached to, that, Lord, through the ministration of your word, we might be drawn closer unto thee. Lord, I, I pray that each and every heart would be touched. I want to take a moment, Father, and ask that you would meet with all the requests that have been given. According to your will, there's not a one of them that fell to the ground. But, Father, you heard every single one of them. And I pray, Father, that you would just meet with them in your eternal wisdom and providence, that uh, that which would bring you the most glory and be the most for our good would be what is wrought in our lives and the lives of others. Now, Father, bless this time that we have together, that it might, Lord, uh, mold us and shape us more into the image of Christ. We ask it in His blessed name. Amen. I want you to notice uh, verses 13 through 16. Now, Peter has given several big statements in the preceding verses, all the way up to verse number 12, and we're going to walk through some of them. But what he has essentially given is an overview of God's redemptive plan for the ages and for humanity. And he, he has showed how that what you and I are the recipients of in this New Testament dispensation of grace is something that ever since the beginning of time, that mankind has sought to peer into. The angels of heaven have looked over the balcony and sought to peer into it. Prophets and sages have sought to understand it. 
And that you and I are the recipients of this. And we don't dwell under the shadow of vaguely uh, presented doctrinal thought, but we live in the full light of the revelation of the Word of God and the person of Jesus Christ. And he sums all of this up in this way, verse 13. He says, wherefore. Now, that word wherefore means in light of this, because of this, built upon this, uh, regarding what has just been said. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But, now, stop and think about this for a moment. He said, this is how you don't need to be. He's saying, in light of what I've revealed to you, there's a way you do need to be. You need to gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. He says, you don't need to be how you used to be. You don't need uh, to uh, be as a disobedient child, uh, fashioning yourself after or according to the former lusts in your ignorance. So, By comparing contrast, he says, that's not how you need to be. This is how you need to be. This is to sum up what Peter is driving at. And he gives it in very simple terms. Verse number 15, he says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And then lest we should wonder about it, he says in verse 16, Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. I want to preach to you for a few minutes tonight on holiness, on the holiness of God and holiness in the life of a believer. You know, I think often when we think of the term holiness, we associate it with the idea of clean living, or doing good, or or exercising charity, and, and, and ministering to other people. But as we study the Word of God, I think we find that holiness is much more than uh, simply a system, uh, or even the result of following rules. I think holiness is deeply connected with the person of God, with His uh, nature, with His behavior, with who He is. And I think that, if I can put it this way, if if we were to describe this this world, this reality, let me say it that way, the fact that there is a God, we know there is a God, the fact that we are His creation, the fact that this world has been created and that God has a plan uh, for His creation... When we talk about the big ideas of what God is doing in this world, when we talk about what frames our reality, I believe the holiness of God is not merely a a side note in that reality. But I think the holiness of God is one of the very fundamental building blocks that has shaped what reality is. Let me give you another example of this. The Word of God. The Bible says that the Word of God, that by the Word of God, the worlds were framed that God created everything by the Word of God. He spoke it into existence. So when we talk about the Word of God, we are talking about literal words that we have laid on a page before us. But we're also talking about the very expression of God's mind and intelligence and His will and volition in this world. The Word of God is one of those fundamental components, one of those building blocks. And the holiness of God, I think, too, is one of these fundamental building blocks. Because of God's holiness, up is up, down is down, black is black, white is white, blue is blue, red is red. Things are what they are because God is who He is, and who He is, is holy. He's holy. I want to make a few statements and try to pull this out of what may feel a little abstract and put it in terms that we can put our hands on before we get into the message. 
Holiness is not merely a system or the result of following rules. That's a misnomer. Holy living is not just following a bunch of rules. It's not just ticking a bunch of boxes. It's not just saying, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. Holiness is deeper. It's more than that. Holiness is God's unique purity, integrity, and sacredness. Uh, The word holy literally means sacred. Uh, In the Old Testament, the priests were tasked with putting a difference between the clean and the unclean. The idea being some things were holy, they were sacred, they were set aside, they were unique, they were special, and some things were common. In fact, we use the term profane today. Somebody will say, well, that's a profane thing to say, or they're using profanity. But the word profane literally just means common. Just means every day. It means, it means, uh, non-unique, non-distinct. And so in the Old Testament, there were the sacred things and the profane things. The holy things and the unholy things. And the unholy things were not necessarily denoted by being of great social offense to people, of, 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 uh, being a great transgression against people's sense of righteousness. But something being unholy merely meant it was not of the class of that which is holy, that which is sacred, that which is set apart. That is an extension of the fact that holiness is a description of who and what God is. Let me say it this way. God's holiness is best described as that quality that infinitely distinguishes Him from His creation. Him being holy can best be described as saying He is not like us. Isaiah said His ways, He has ways and we have ways, but His ways are not our ways. He has thoughts and we have thoughts, but His thoughts are not our thoughts. And if we want to put them side by side, His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His holiness, we might describe this way, is the very very superlative reality of who God is. The fact that God is right, and if anything is in contradiction to God, then it is, by dint of it being in contradiction to God, wrong. It is His very essence, His holiness. And I think when we try to say, this is holiness, now let's apply this to God. We're getting the ox before the cart, or the cart before the ox. Instead, what we need to say is we need to say, this is what the the Bible describes God to be, and so that must be what holiness looks like. If we wanted to simplify it even further, we could say that holiness is being like God. Because holiness is what God is like. You'll find several important truths in the Word of God. Let me give you these as a little introduction. Holiness is always associated with the person of God. And anytime anything's described as holy, it's always only holy in relation to how it correlates to God. So God can call something holy because He knows what holiness is because He is holy. If it's something in line with Him and what He desires and what He loves and what He likes and what He prefers and what He declares to be right, then it is holy, for holiness is Him. It's always associated with the holiness of God. God has a lot of attributes. There are a lot of qualities to God's nature. But there are a few things that we could say are the essence of God. They are the very, and I don't want to get too abstract, but they are the very fundamental building blocks of God's character. For instance, the Bible says God is love. God is deeply motivated by love, and everything that God does can only be rightly interpreted through the prism of understanding that it's motivated by love. 
You might say, well, preacher, God's angry with the wicked every day. I'm aware of that. I understand that all the nations that turn their back on God are going to be turned into hell. I understand that God is a wrathful God and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But the only reason that God has a capacity for hate is because He is love. And so even when He deals in wrath, He's dealing in wrath because He is motivated by love. Now, you might say, well, preacher, how can somebody be motivated by both? Well, this is simple. Uh, there are certain people, and you've heard this before, you have locks on your door. And you don't have locks on your door because you hate the people outside. You've got locks on your door because you love the people inside. If you didn't care about anybody inside, or if you didn't care about anything in your house, you probably wouldn't bother to lock it. But you shut people out because of the love that you have for those that are on the inside. So you can see how these two things, uh, you know, a, a shepherd loves his sheep, so he hates wolves. A farmer loves his crops, so he hates weeds. Uh, a, a, an honest person, he, he loves his family, so he hates those that would do him harm. And his wrath, his displeasure with these things is rooted in his love. God is love. It's one of the fundamental components of His nature. And holiness is the same way. Holiness is the purity of God. Uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans, they had gods, quote-unquote. They were no real gods, like Paul says. We know that there's only one God. But the gods that they worshipped were not pure gods. They weren't holy gods. In fact, what those gods were really were mirrored out images of man's worst qualities. So they had gods of lust and gods of war and gods of greed and gods of anger and things like that. What they were was a mirror image because even God Himself said that those that make these idols are like unto them. All they can do, they can't create anything external of who they are and what they know. So they take what they are and image that out and mirror that out and line that out. And that's what their gods were. But our God is not like us. And if we are to be like our God, it will only be because we have changed and He has changed us. It will not be because God is like us. You see, the idea is this. We're made in His image, not He in our image. He's a holy God. Holiness is associated with the person of God. Holiness is associated with the presence of God. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but you can go through the entire first book of your Bible and never find the word holy. It's not until you come to Exodus chapter 3, verse number 5, that you find the first instance of the word holy in your Bible. And it's when God speaks to Moses at the burning bush and says, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. It tells me this, that the holiness of God can only be rightly understood in juxtaposition to man's unholiness. You see, when Moses is standing right there beside God, then God can look and He can say, this ground is holy. Moses, the ground where you were standing is not like the ground where I'm standing. Because wherever I'm at, that's a holy place. Because my holiness is sanctifying this area. It's changing the very qualities of the physical world that we're living in and walking in. And when you step on the ground that I'm on, you're on holy ground now, Moses. So now that Moses, an unholy man, as we all are unholy, he's a sinner just like we're all sinners, now you can rightly contrast those things. Imagine if someone asked you to dream up a new color that didn't involve any of the primary colors in the color spectrum. How would you even do it? How would you even fathom that? How can you even try to figure out you only have the building blocks you have to work with? And in the same way, man can't understand the holiness of God except he look at himself and say, the way I am is not the way God is. There has to be some frame 
to make it understandable, something to frame it in. Holiness is associated with the presence of God. And then holiness is associated with the purpose of God. And I think that's what Peter's getting at here, is that God has a desire to make us holy. He wants to make us like He is. The problem with us is that we are like we are, and we're not like Him. And if we could sum up the purpose of God's redemptive plan in one singular goal, it would be, as it relates to mankind anyways, it would be to make us like Him. And He affects this not through the will of man or the will of the flesh, but He does this through the will of God and through the blood of Christ. And we don't have time to get into all of it, but I want you to understand that holiness is a lot more than just saying, I follow a bunch of rules. There's a lot of people that practice right living that are not holy because they're not living in the presence of God. They're not desiring to see the purpose of God fulfilled in their life and they're not seeking to emulate the person of God. They've merely, they've got a form of godliness. They know what it ought to look like, but they've denied the power thereof. The power thereof is the Spirit of God. Only by the outliving and outgrowing of the person of the Spirit of God in our life. In other words, as we obey Him, He makes us look more like Jesus. Because He has the mind of Christ. He knows what exactly... People, they wear the little bracelets. What would Jesus do? And I don't care if you wear them or don't wear them. But I'll tell you this, the believer doesn't have to wonder. Because the Spirit of Christ has taken up residence in his heart and life. If he wants to know what Jesus would do, all he merely has to do is follow the leading of the Spirit of God. And he'll make you more like Jesus Christ. I want you to consider tonight three reasons that we ought to be holy. And again, not just right living, not just good works, not just uh, clean living, but three reasons that we ought to live in the conscious, perpetual presence of God. Three reasons that we ought to make God's purpose for our life, our purpose for our life. And three reasons that we ought to seek to emulate the person of God. And they're all three found in our text. Notice them very quickly with me. Look at verse number 14. Uh, he says, this is how we're supposed to behave, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Let me say, number one, we ought, we ought to be holy because of our calling. We are called to be holy. Now, here in a few moments, I'm going to talk about a command that's given. And he emphasizes it in verse 16. But I'm not just talking about simply the Bible says it so we ought to do it. Now, that ought to be enough. But what I mean is this, you know, I'm a preacher of the Word of God. It's a calling in my life. I did other things before I became a preacher. I worked a a myriad of different jobs, and none of them were a calling. I remember I used to get in trouble. I I worked at one point, in fact, it was while I was pastoring here, I worked at a little... uh, at a little auto parts uh, store, and I'd drive, I'd make deliveries for them and stuff. And they'd have these weekly meetings on, uh, they'd have them on Sundays, and or I guess they were monthly meetings. But they'd have them on Sundays, and they'd all we'd all gather in there, and they'd give us the pep talk. So here's what you can envision if you want to. You've got middle management there who is tasked with the worst job in the world, who has to make inspiring the the activity of selling auto parts, Right? That's their job. Their job is to take a bunch of people that are there for just a paycheck, because that's the only reason anybody's working a job like that, is just a paycheck. And they're tasked with making brake pads and rotors and and spark plugs inspiring. That's his job. 
So he'd gather us all around and he'd go through the little brochure and everything. He'd try to get us pumped up, man. These are the specials this month. Try to sell these. If you do, you get 10 cents for every, you know, $400 set of this that you, that you sell and, you know, trying to get you excited about it. And I remember one day he asked, he said, let me ask you something. Who here is just for a paycheck? Nothing else. That's the only reason you're here. And me and this other old man both raised our hands. <laughs> And it made it made the guy mad. It made the manager mad. He said, if that's all you're here for, I said, man, you're crazy. That's the only reason anybody's here. I said, if I'm not here to sell somebody brake pads, there'll be somebody else here to do it. I said, I'm here because you pay me to be here. That's the only reason I'm here. And as soon as my life was situated such that I didn't have to do it, I quit. Because I have no great desire. I hope the brakes are good on every person's car in this room. But it's not my calling, is what I'm saying. And again, I, I did that job. I'm not trying to be derogatory towards it, but I'm, I'm saying this. What I'm doing now, it's a calling. I don't do it for the check that I'm given, although God's people take good care of me. I don't do it for the praise or applause that may be given to me, although God's people are too kind to me sometimes. But I'm saying I do it because it is the reason God put me on this earth. It is my calling. And in the same sense, every believer is called to holiness. It is the chief and fundamental reason that you're walking upon this earth is to be more like Jesus Christ. Notice verse number 2, way back at verse number 2. Peter says to the people that he's writing to that they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit and obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now, there's a lot of people try to make God say something there that He doesn't say. He doesn't say you're elect to be saved. What he says is elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto what? Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Never once does God say you are elect to be saved. Why is that? Because he's already talking to saved people. What he's saying is saved people are elected by God according to his foreknowledge to what? To walk in obedience unto the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, again, a lot of people try to take that sprinkling of the blood of Christ and try to make that synonymous with salvation, but you'll find that never anywhere in the Bible is sprinkling associated with salvation. It's always associated with sanctification. In fact, Paul says in the book of Hebrews that our consciences have been purged by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. It has to do with consecrating something, purifying it, sanctifying it. And what Paul's saying in Hebrews is this, that because of the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary and because we believed on Him, our consciences can be purged from dead works to serve the living God. He's not saying our sins need to be purged away from us. They've already been took care of. But he's saying our conscience can be purged. So that we can have a set-aside, consecrated, dedicated mind, not living in the distraction of our baggage from our old life. But rather that we can focus on Him. The sprinkling that's spoken of here, it's not talking about salvation, but rather it's talking about what it mentioned a few words earlier, through sanctification of the Spirit, and obedience and sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ. Living a separated life, an obedient life, and a life with a clear conscience. And you know, we could say it this way. He's saying, I want you to be more like Jesus Christ. Let me say this. Holiness is our destiny. As a believer, holiness is our destiny. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? It's holiness. It's sanctification. That's what Paul said. This is the will of God for you. Uh, that even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. You don't have to wonder whether uh, whether holiness 
is the will of God. It is the will of God. In fact, it is such the will of God that another place where the language predestination is used is in the book of Romans where it says we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. What we're predestined to be is not to be saved. God gives us free will and volition and choice. But once we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are then predestined at that point to be made like Jesus Christ. In other words, every believer is going to be like Him one day. As John says, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We know, he says, we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. You don't have to wonder if you're going to be made in His image one day. You know you're going to be made in His image. And so you say, preacher, what should I do then? Then you should be pursuing after that. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. He said, something's grabbed hold of me. There's a purpose in my life. There's a calling in my life. In fact, he said, I follow after. He said, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He said, God has called me to live a certain way. And I'm not waiting until I get to heaven to be like Jesus. I'm trying even now. He says, I'm following after. Not as though I were already perfect. Not as though I'd already attained. He said, but I follow after. I'm trying to be more like Jesus. He says, I'm not waiting until heaven to try to fulfill my destiny, but I'm going to chase after it. You ought to be holy because it's your destiny. Look down at verse number 7. Peter says this, that the trial of your faith, the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it might be tried with fire, may it might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love." in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, this is interesting because, again, we have this very one-dimensional idea of the word salvation and saved. We think saved means uh, born again. Now, it's true that on very many occasions in the Word of God, the word saved does simply mean born again. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, be born again. But the word salvation and saved in the Bible, it can mean any number of things, and the context dictates what? Sometimes the word saved, it means born again. Sometimes the word saved, it means rescued from uh, from a, a meaningless existence, rescued from uh, a, a situation that is less than desirable or less than ideal. For instance, the Bible talks about a woman being saved in childbearing. That doesn't mean you've got to have a child in order to be born again. But what it's saying is that as the woman lost a place of testimony in Eve, that that needfulness, that that uh, fulfillment, that that sense of purpose, Purpose is often granted back in rearing children. So the word saved sometimes can denote to that. Sometimes the word saved can denote being rescued from your immediate circumstances, from danger. Uh, the Bible talks about, uh, Paul talks about being delivered from unreasonable men. He's not talking about being saved, but he's talking about being rescued from them. So the context dictates. What is Peter talking about here? He says, let's read it again carefully. That the trial of your faith, so the things you're going through, the hard time, the obstacles, the persecution, the affliction, that that's much more precious than than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. So in other words, the suffering, the trials that we're going through, it's a precious thing. And it's kind of like gold. It's more precious than of gold. Gold is purged in fire, and our faith is purged in fire in the same way. And the desire is that it might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So God's refining us so that one day when Christ returns, we'll be able to render Him more glory. 
Now it's talking about Jesus, Jesus Christ. And it says, whom having not seen, ye love. Remember, one of God's fundamental attributes is love. Whom having not seen, ain't none of us ever seen him, but we love him. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You know what that is? That's living in the conscious presence of God. That's holiness. Holiness. Living with purpose. Living trying to emulate the person of God. And in doing so, he says, receiving the, notice this phrase, the end of your faith. The end result of it. The consummation of it. What's the consummation? For what reason have we been apprehended? What are we predestined to? What has God elected us according to His foreknowledge through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ? What has He done all that towards and for and to the end of? That we might be like Christ. Even the salvation of your souls. In other words, what Paul's getting at, or what Peter's getting at, you're going to hear me say that a few more times tonight, I'm sure. What Peter is getting at is this. Just like Paul said, the overall goal is to make you more like Christ. And he says, when you suffer, and when you do it with the right spirit, and when you do it in holiness, you never look more like Jesus than when you're suffering in holiness. And he says, when that happens, you're receiving the purpose for which God saved you. You're apprehending that which has apprehended you. I just say it this way, that holiness is our deliverance. Holiness is what enables us to taste heaven before we get there. It's what enables us to be like Christ before we see Him. We've not seen Him, but we love Him. We rejoice believing with joy unspeakable, full of glory. Holiness. And I'm, I'm trying to get at this. If you're not living a holy life, then you're missing out on a lot of what God is seeking to do in your life. I ask this question in my notes. Holiness is the evidence and expression of our deliverance. He saved us that we might be like Him. We are saved from what? There's a lot of people that think of salvation as saving us from hell. Well, it does that. When I got saved, that's what I asked the Lord. I said, Lord, I don't want to die and go to hell. Please save me. Please forgive me. And He certainly has done that. I'm not appointed under wrath, but I'm appointed under deliverance. But God saves us from more than hell. He saves us from our sins if we don't want to live in bondage to Him the way that we used to. It's not to say anybody lives perfectly, but it's to say that we don't have to yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness anymore. He saves us from the guilt and shame of our past. And I'm saying when we're living a holy life, we are partaking in that deliverance which God is seeking to bring about in our life. Holiness is our deliverance. Look at verse number 10. We're going to move a little faster here, so don't get nervous. We're just about through the introduction. No, I'm joking. Verse 10 says, Of which salvation? Of which salvation? So in other words, God making you holy and making you more like Him. Of which salvation? The prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify... Now, by the way, let me say, what's the Spirit of Christ? Well, how were they inspired? They were inspired by the Holy Ghost. Holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of Christ, and we'll say a word about this in a moment, is the Spirit of God. They're one and the same. The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. They were searching. 
which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Notice this last phrase, which things the angels desire to look into. Let me say this, holiness is our dignity. It's our dignity. It's our distinguishing quality. It's the thing that all through the ages mankind has sought to peer into. It's the missing piece of the puzzle in mankind's existence is the sense of purpose in pursuing and fulfilling the image of God in us as we obey the Spirit of God. That's what holiness is. It's our dignity. We could say it this way that the life of inward holiness that flows outwardly is the great elevation, consummation, and realization of God's creation. When he made man, he made him in his image. And the first Adam was made in the image of God, but that image was marred by his sin. But now what we lost in Adam, we've got back, and we've got back more than what we lost in Adam in the second Adam, in Christ. And now we are made not just outwardly as Adam was, but inwardly too, and throughly we are made in the image of God through Jesus Christ. The greatest thing you could ever achieve in your life is holy living. If you can live a holy life, no matter what, how much money's in your bank account or isn't there when you die, it doesn't matter if anybody knows your name. If you can live a holy life, meaning in the perpetual presence of God, with the purpose of God being the stamp of imprimatur on your life, with the person of God being the, 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 the grand desire that you might emulate Christ, if you can embrace that and live your life faithfully and diligently to that end, then you're a success. You've done more than far more people will ever do. It's our dignity. So we're to be holy because we are called. We're going to move through these next ones quickly. Number two, we're to be holy because of Christ. Look what it says in verse number 15. But as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. So even if we want to dismiss or ignore our calling, even and a lot of people do, they abandon that. I think when we look at Christ, when we look at Calvary, I think that ought to move us to holy living. Really because of three things. One, because of His sojourn on this earth. In other words, He is our example. And His life was an example of holiness. You cannot look at Christ without seeing holiness, for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You want to know what holiness walking in flesh looks like? Look at Jesus Christ. He lived in perpetual fellowship with His Father. Such that He he didn't he didn't set aside time to prayer. His life was set aside to prayer. I mean, he did go into the wilderness. He did have seasons in which that's all he did. But he was never out of communication with his father. He lived in the perpetual presence of God. He lived with the purpose of his father upon his life. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? For this hour came I into the world. And my meat is to do the will of him that sent me, he said, and to finish his work. His purpose in life was to do the will of the father. God's purpose was singular with his purpose. And then the person of God was perfectly represented in him. Perfectly. He's in, in him the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. He told Philip, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the Father that was in his bosom hath declared him. You want to know what God looked like? He looked like Christ. So much so that that's what he told Philip. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. His life is a perfect example of holiness. Not only his sojourn, but his sayings. He taught his disciples to live righteous, holy lives. Evidently, he believed in holiness, because that's what he taught his disciples to do. 
And he spent great amounts of time describing and expressing to them what holiness looks like. And then I think we also ought to, because of his spirit, because of his spirit, his spirit is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit speaks not of himself, but of Christ. Therefore, if we obey the Holy Spirit as he leads us and guides us, let me tell you something. I, this, the only way I know how to express it is this. You can act like a Christian and never follow the leading of the Spirit of God. But you can't be a Christian. You can be saved, but you can't be a Christian. I'm talking about have the life of Christ living through you without obeying the Spirit of God. And to do one without the other, to act like a Christian without doing it by the prodding and leading and administrative coordinating of the Spirit of God, that's to have a form of godliness. Anybody ever work with concrete? That's what a form. A form is something that you lay out and it's the exact same parameters. It's the exact same measurements and details and and, and dimensions. But the problem is, and if you look at it one-dimensionally, you wouldn't know you're looking at anything except the real thing. But if you can look at it from every angle, you find out there's nothing in it until the concrete's been poured in it. It's empty. There's a lot of people that have a form of godliness. And you see them from a distance and you see them one-dimensionally and they look and act like a Christian, but you dig deeper into their life and you find out that they've got no devotional life, they've got no prayer life, that they all they've done is they're, they're following a bunch of rules. And then they want to turn back and impugn the holiness of God and say, oh, well, it's bondage. Well, listen, if all it is is keeping a bunch of rules, then yeah, it is bondage. But when you recognize it's dwelling and living perpetually in the person, presence, and power of God, you realize it's not a, a, a limiting thing. It's an elevating thing. It's an empowering thing. I think because of His Spirit. Let me give you this one I'm done. You didn't believe me when I said I was going to be quick. Because we are called. It's our purpose. Because of Christ, He's our example. We owe it to Him. But also because we're commanded. Look at verse number 16. Because it is written. I'll be honest with you, when I was going to preach this message, that was going to be what it was titled. And it really wasn't going to have anything to do with anything we've talked about up to this point. It was just going to be because it is written. You know, there's a lot of things in life. We don't have to have 700 reasons to know why. It's enough to know it is written. He says, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. The Old Testament, time and time again in the book of Leviticus, when speaking to the priests, God emphasized His holiness. And He declared to them that they were to be holy. They were the administrators and representatives of God. So they were to be holy. Why? Because God was to be holy. Or God is holy. And they were to be His His right representatives. They were to be His face to the public. And invoking this, Peter says, it's written. It's written. You and I, John said, are priests and kings unto our God. I believe in the priesthood of the believer. I don't have to go to a priest to pray and, and, and to get to God. I don't have to go sit in a cubicle and tell him all my dirty laundry. I have a high priest... And I have been made a priest. So I don't have to do that. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Seeing we have such an high priest as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us come boldly, therefore, under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of, of need. I don't need a priest to get me to God. I've already got a priest at the right hand of God. And I, too, can approach unto Him. Uh, I am a, a priest as well as as uh, as any other believer. So we are to do it. It's commanded to you and it's commanded to me. Stop and think about three simple thoughts 
as I close. One, the word of the law commands it. The passage that's quoted here is an Old Testament passage. Now you might say, well, preacher, that's all they had. Well, sometimes they quoted the first-hand words of the Lord Jesus. In fact, Paul in the book of Acts, he quotes a uh, quote from the Lord Jesus that isn't found anywhere but the book of Acts. So they could have quoted the words of the Lord Jesus, but instead Peter reaches back into the Old Testament law and he quotes it. Let me say it this way, that it is a sin to not live a holy life. If we're not living with these three big principles and ideals, uh, trying to emulate the person of God, living perpetually in the presence of God, and living with the purpose of God being our purpose, then that's not just sad, it's sinful. It's not just empty, it's iniquity. The Word of the law commands it. Number two, the Word of the Lord commands it. The Word of the Lord. It displeases God. Not only that, it robs Him of glory to not live holy lives. Robs Him of glory. You ever had anything that you thought, man, that just didn't work out the way I had hoped? Now, I'm glad one of these days all of us going to work out like He hopes. But what a sad thing it is when you, when you do, and it just don't work out like you hope. And you, something you were hoping you could boast in and say, man, look how good that looks. Instead, it's a shame to you. And you have to hide it. And you have to be disgraced at it. You have to say, well, it just didn't turn out the way I was hoping. It robs God of glory when we're not turning out like we're supposed to. Now, again, one of these days, every one of us, our vile body is going to be made like on His glorious body. The sin nature will be eradicated one of these days. But I don't think we ought to wait to heaven to be like Christ. I think the very fact that it brings glory to God is reason enough to pursue after holiness. And finally, and I'm done, the word of life commands it. Paul and John both call the Bible the word of life. I like that phrase. It, it reminds me that this book, and Christ told His disciples, said the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. This is a book unlike any other book in the world. There's a lot of good books, but there's only one that is God's book. And there's, listen, there, there, there's a lot of books that are, that are helpful, but there's only one that's holy and hallowed. And there's a lot that are informative, but there's only one that's inspired. And this book, this book, if we will apply it, it will make our life what life should be. It will make our life worth living. God's Word imparts to us true life and life more abundant. A holy life is the only kind of life that's worth living. You've got a bunch of Christians nowadays that are walking around in grave clothes like Lazarus when he came out of the tomb. They're walking around in, in the rags of their old dead life. And a lot of them are wearing pretty religious looking rags, but they're still trying to do it in the energy of their own flesh and in their own ability. They're trying to strive instead of surrendering and submitting. And they're trying to do it by leading a good life instead of letting God lead their life. And in doing so, they're miserable. they got that form, but they've denied the power thereof. And they're living a life that is truly a yoke of burden upon them instead of an existence of blessing for them. The word of life, man. The word of life says be ye holy. You know what that tells me? It tells me it's good for you to be holy. It's not just good for God. It's not just good for the church. It's not just good for others. It's not just good for the family. It's good for you to be holy. You hear people say all the time, God came to make us holy, not to make us happy. That's true. But can I let you in on a little secret? It's not one or the other. If we'll be, it's got to be one before the other. But it's not one or the other. If you try to be happy without being holy, you'll be neither. 
But if you'll put holiness as the priority in your life, it'll make you happy. Not to say there won't be burdens and hard times and valleys and clouds and storms, but it's to say that there'll be a, what did, what did Peter call it? Joy unspeakable and full of glory in a holy life.